Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. In case you missed it, my recent article, Dear Hollywood, We Don't Want to Go Back to Normal, Normal Wasn't Working, ignited a firestorm of conversations, social media messages, and a barrage of emails. And by the way, I promise I'm reading all of them. And this article ultimately became the impetus for today's candid conversation with Motion Picture Editors Guild National Executive Director, Kathy Rapola. Since 2016, Kathy has been one of Hollywood's leading voices on labor, working to negotiate and enforce contracts that protect the wages, benefits, and the livelihoods of the more than 8,000 workers that are in the post-production industry, including my own, and I thank her personally for that. Like so many other organizations, Kathy has been working tirelessly with studio executives and union members to come up with a plan to get all of us in Hollywood back to work, but most importantly, back to work safely. But how can we do that without putting ourselves at risk? Well, if you haven't yet read my article, and by the way, you should probably stop listening and read it right now, but here are the cliff notes. We are tired of long hours and unrealistic deadlines that keep us from seeing our families, raising our kids, and enjoying our lives. We all need to seize this opportunity while Hollywood is shut down to shift the paradigm and restructure our work-life balance. Instead of quote-unquote going back to normal, we need to define a new version of normal that will work for all of us. Number one, namely, we need to abolish the standard 60-hour week. Please do not get me started. Number two, nobody should ever have to sign liability waivers to return to work. Number three, We all require compensation for our equipment if we are asked or required to work from home. And as a bonus, don't you dare ask me or anybody else to provide childcare if we have to work from home. Kathy and I dive into all of these topics in depth in this interview, as well as we also field live questions from the Facebook community, because when I originally recorded this, it was indeed a Facebook live Q&A. 
All right, without further ado, my conversation with National Executive Director of the Motion Picture Editors Guild, Kathy Rapola. I am here today with Kathy Rapola. You are the National Executive Director of the Motion Picture Editors Guild. And I cannot thank you enough for being here. I can't even imagine the mountain of issues that you have to deal with right now on a daily basis. And something tells me that you didn't sign up for all of this when you first started. I'm guessing you didn't see this coming when you're like, this sounds like a really cool opportunity to, to represent this union in this guild. Um, so it, it definitely means a lot to have you here. What I want to talk about today is going to be this idea that I started. And this, uh, as we talked about offline a little bit before the call, the conversation that you and I have had behind the scenes uh, in uh, phone calls, emails, the article is kind of a culmination of that, where we see this inflection point right now, where we've spent so many years and decades in Hollywood trying to very slowly fix and remodel this plane that's barreling 575 miles per hour through the air. And it's really hard to make substantial change because you don't want to crash. But the plane's in the hangar, and we're here and we want to do something about this. And a couple of things that I want to go through before we jump in, the first of which is I have received hundreds and hundreds of comments from people all over the world. I didn't expect any of this. I thought it was going to be another conversation about working conditions in post. And all of a sudden, I'm getting emails from second assistant directors in Mexico City and accountants in Japan and corporate video editors in Germany. Like, this is not a union issue anymore. This is a universal human issue. So for a lot of the people that I think are either going to be listening or watching, I don't want them to ask the question, well, pff, that's great for people that are in the union, but what about me? And I want to really identify that we're talking about human issues, but I believe, and this, uh, I got a, a really good uh, Facebook comment from somebody a couple days ago that said, it kind of starts at the union where they set the standards, which gives a voice to the non-union people to say, listen, I may not have the literal protections as a union member, but here's what they're doing and we need to do our best to follow this as well. So I want to make it very clear to anybody that's listening that is not in a union, this conversation is for you too. One of the things that I think is really funny about this is that I've been told over and over again, thank you for starting this conversation. I'm like, starting? What are you talking about? I've been <laughs> screaming this from the rooftop for six years, and I don't know about all of the other organizations in the world of uh, beyond post-production, but in our little tiny world of post-production, the Guild has been fighting for these rights for years. American Cinema Editors has been fighting for these rights for years. Amazing organizations like Blue Collar Post Collective have been fighting for this stuff for years. So the fact that we're now bringing this conversation together, we haven't started it, we're continuing it. But the part about this that I really, really love that I'm starting to see and I want you to talk more about as well as we get into this is during the last contract negotiations, it was like all these islands. And now I feel like we're all kind of starting to say, wait, we all have the same problems, don't we? Maybe we need to start to, to come together for all of this. So I just I wanted to frame the conversation in that sense. There are so many things that we could talk about. We could probably do a 75-part podcast about all of the issues and the comments <laughs> and everything that people are asking you. The three that I brought up in the post are the ones that you and I have chatted about as well, which is number one, waivers. Number two, hours. And I think a, another kind of addendum to that is how child care is going to factor into the hours that we used to work and the hours we will work. And then ultimately, if we're going to be working from home, how can we be compensated? So there's probably going to be other ancillary discussions that we can have, but I think those are really the three core issues that I want to tackle today. So I feel like the most pressing one, given present circumstances, is obviously waivers. 
So I just want to talk about like waivers 101. If I don't really understand what the conversations are, am I protected? Am I not? What does it mean if I sign a waiver? What do they mean? Let's just get started by helping people understand what does it mean that waivers are now involved with us going back to work? Well, there are different types of waivers, waivers I'll say. So it kind of depends on exactly what it says. And I think the term's being used a little bit loosely these days, but so look, there's there, and I've seen plenty of these documents already because people are starting to return to work sites to finish up posts and pack up editing rooms and some of the unscripted stuff is starting pre-production. So, you know, it, there's like a disclaimer, which is different than a liability waiver. So a disclaimer that we're doing absolutely everything we can. We're in guidelines with the county guidelines, state guidelines, regardless of where you live, all that stuff, plus whatever our companies have put together ultimately, which hasn't happened yet, but ultimately whatever the unions and the producers agree to jointly, they've done all of that stuff, but they still can't guarantee that somebody's not going to get sick. And so you sign that acknowledging that that's the case. That's not waiving your liability. Waiving the liability is saying, if I do get sick, the employer is not responsible in any way, shape or form for anything that happens to me, for any potential work comp claim, for any, time missed from work, all that sort of stuff. That's what we're talking about when we tell members not to sign those. It is absolutely the employer's responsibility to provide a safe work environment. They can't ask people to sign it. They're not supposed to ask people to sign it. If members or non-members out there in the world you know, chose to sign it, um, at least in the United States, I can't speak to the laws in other countries if we have other people from other countries listening, but we would consider they'd be null and void anyway. It's a it's a matter that has to be bargained directly with with the union in regards to all of that. Got it. Okay, so just to clarify, the the really short version is ideally nobody should be signing waivers and signing away and saying, you know what, I'm going to take the risk myself. Is that kind of the the really really short version? No, no, but I, I, sort of short version. Yes. I mean, I, 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 we're telling members right now, um, and I don't know non-members if they have a resource for this, but we're telling members. If you're called back to work or called back onto a project or whatever, and you're given paperwork, don't sign anything without sending it to us. Because sometimes, you know, it's hidden in little fine print somewhere and you don't know what you're signing exactly. And I know people are anxious to return to work, a lot of people, um, not to the old normal, hopefully to a new normal. But um, yeah, so I like don't sign anything without, you know, reading it or giving it to us and giving us an opportunity to read. And a lot of this is being vetted through um, the IETSE West Coast office in the West Coast in New York on their East Coast office through their legal counsels. We're sending documents all the time that our members are supplying to us from various companies. Okay, well, that's helpful for me because when I think of a waiver, um, uh, there's, I don't know if you're familiar with obstacle course racing, um, but I love doing things like Tough Mudders and Spartan races where you go out in the hills and you're climbing up uh, ropes and jumping over fire and under barbed wire. And the joke is, and it's not really a joke, you're signing what's called a death waiver. It's like, yep, sign my death waiver, which means, and it says in very clear print, big, bold letters, even if you die on the course, not our fault. You know what you're signing up for. You know what you're getting into. And I'm paying money to put myself in that situation, which is a whole nother crazy conversation I won't get into. But this conversation is very different because I'm not saying, well, you know what you signed up for, right? Well, I just want to work. So whatever it takes to work. I want people to understand that under certain conditions and under certain language, they're signing their life away. And if they get sick and they can no longer work, they can't blame their employer for lack of a safe environment. Right. And, and the big difference in the example you give and what I was what we're talking about is under under a work environment, it's an employee employer relationship. The laws are very different. You go into some private club or public place or whatever you're signing as just a citizen of the world going into there, that's totally different. This is, these are dictated 
um, employer-employer relationships that are guided by law and by collective bargaining rights. So how far in the the various waivers that you've seen, and people are even sending them to me, and it's it's all gibberish. Like I, I, I don't read legalese, but a, p- a bunch of people have been sending them to me, and I can't really decipher to, to what level are either production houses, studios, uh, private companies that are non-union. I don't know how many of the variations you're seeing, but how far do you see in general people trying to push the envelope saying, here's what you can expect when you come back to work and we don't want to be liable? Like, what, What's the spectrum look like right now? Well, tell you the truth, I'm not seeing a lot of it in the union world. Most of them are being very compliant with everything, especially in the larger studio, larger independent companies, um, certainly post-production facilities, you know, they, I think, understand what their obligations are and they're not really trying to push that off onto employees. Um, In the non-union world, I have no idea what's going on. I suspect there's some of it happening. There's a lot. There's a lot of it happening. I've, I, I've gotten, would imagine. I have gotten multiple messages, or I got a message just yesterday from somebody. I'll keep them anonymous, but they said I don't remember the exact words, but it was like a short one one sentence message. Um, yep, just got asked to sign the waiver. Yikes! Right, yeah. and it basically states all the things where they're the company they work for, and they're full time uh, for a, a post house. And it's mm-hmm. basically saying you're coming assuming the risk. And there, there's just something so inherently wrong about that, especially, and this is another thing we'll get into later, if they're telling them they can't work from home. So what, what do we do in this situation? And obviously, if you're a union, the simple answer is send it to the union and don't sign anything. Right. But even I think for some people that are in the union, the fear is, but I, I don't want to be the difficult one. I don't want to be the one that says, I'm not, I'm not going to sign this until I send it to the union. Well, fine. We're just going to find somebody that will. So whether you're union or non-union, how do you start to combat some of the pushback that's going to come and the desperation that so many people have to just get back to work and have a paycheck again? That's that's going to be a a little bit of a battle, I think, on some level. I mean, I'll say, you know, there's always been a little bit of that that goes on with all kinds of conditions, right? I'll work overtime for free. I won't put in for it. This person will. That person, you know, blah, blah, they're competing. Maybe I'll hire the person who's willing to put in a few extra hours as opposed to the one who's not. I think the difference, and which I'm seeing at the moment, while there is a you know quote desperation to go to work, people are genuinely concerned about their life and their health. And this is a whole new. I mean, we'll get into this. I know with the normal, you know, crazy hours and all that other stuff. But this, I, I think, this resonates with people in a very different way now. I have not so far experienced anybody saying to me, well, don't tell the company I'm the one who called you or don't let them know I'm the one who asked or don't let them know. And I actually just got off the phone with an assistant editor that I called myself and I just want to make sure, you know, you're okay with everything that they put in place. And he's like, so grateful to the, thank you. And I will call you the second if any, cause there, he, you know, he's expressed some concern about what could happen in the environment he's in. And I think, I hope that that will be enough to make people feel safe to reach out to us and do the right thing. You know, I mean, you're protecting everybody when you do it, right? But, you know, that's true of a lot of union stuff. So I think, I I hope, I hope the seriousness of this will make people realize they shouldn't fear that. And and, and everything we've discussed, even though there's no agreed upon protocols yet, but all the discussions we've had on our side, you know, so it can't be retaliation against people for any of this kind of stuff. People are nervous if they're afraid, if they think something's not been addressed properly, you know, if they have compromised immune systems, all that sort of stuff, um, 
this can't be used as a way to retaliate against workers. That's just outrageous. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And what I'm really encouraged by is this, not encouraged by the present circumstances. I certainly didn't want it to come together the way that it has, but um, I'm always looking for the opportunity in every situation, no matter how bad. I don't want to focus on the things I can't control. I want to focus on the things that I can control. And what I'm encouraged about with this conversation is finally people are saying, but this is literally about my life being at stake. And I've kind of been like, yeah, I've, I've kind of been saying that for six years. It's always been about our lives are at stake, yes. but now it's so immediate. So for me, it was about the erosion of your health and your mental health, your physical health over years and years and years of these working conditions. But now it's become so immensely acute where it's a matter of I can go into the office, get sick, and then three weeks later, I'm dead. So same conversation, just much shorter timeline. And I love the fact that it's helping people realize maybe I do need to be the difficult one because if I'm not, I'm putting myself and my family at risk. So that that's the, the silver lining that I see in this otherwise horribly dark cloud. And I'm assuming you're having those conversations as well. Absolutely. And that's the other piece of it, right? It's not just you. It's all the people you're going home to or people you're spending the weekend with or then your loved ones, your family, whatever your, you know, your life is like. You're, expo you're potentially exposing them too. And who wants to do that? I mean, to your kids or wives or whoever, you know, I, hopefully. So I, yeah, it's bigger, right? You could be, you could have a job that exhausts you as many of you all do, you know, no, under normal circumstances, um, you know, go home exhausted and tired and miss out on like, all kinds of family activities and friend activities and can't plan a social life, blah, blah, blah. And you're exhausted and you want to sleep. This is different. This is a matter of life and death, literally. So it's funny you bring that up because that is what I would call the perfect segue because <laughs> that's what I would love to talk about next. And this to me has been exacerbated by the COVID situation and the pandemic. But frankly, this is an age old conversation that's been had in Hollywood for decades and decades and decades. All the things that you already listed, missed anniversaries, missed funerals, missed weddings, right? Missed recitals, all these things that are happening in the world around us that we call real life, where we just kind of half jokingly say, oh yeah, I'll get to all that stuff when hiatus comes because the hours are so brutal. And now, again, coming back to this matter of life and death, it's not just, well, we have all these things that we need to catch up on. We have all this content that was in the pipeline. It's all backed up. We want to get it going again. Let's get it out as hard as we can. Well, if we work even not even at the speed we were pre-pandemic, people are going to get worn out. Their immune systems become compromised and more people die. So this is a life and death conversation, even when it comes to work hours or lack of windows or no walking breaks or this cultural expectation that we are machines, we are extensions of our workstations. How do we start to fight this battle? I know that this is a huge, close to your heart thing as well. It is. <laughs> and if there ever was a time to have this conversation, it seems like this is it. So what I would love to do is just give a, a, for anybody that maybe doesn't understand what the guidelines actually are for union members, whether they are already union members and they don't know we're non-union, what's the expectation now so we know how we can change that expectation? Uh, expe well, the expectation is that you'll work as long as you have to in order to get the job done on that, any particular day, right? Regardless of how many hours that means. Um, there is what we refer to as turnaround time, which is time between when you leave work and when you come back to work. And there's some penalties if it's shorter and and not the penalties are a little weakened if it's a little longer, but there's still penalties. The, the problem is none of those, you know, back in the day, I guess, when they were first introduced, the notion was that those are, would be disincentives, that it would cost the employer more money. Therefore, they would not make people work those types of hours. 
well, it doesn't cost them that much money now. It, um, and in fact, it's the last negotiations, as you know, passionate to my heart, yes, was this whole notion of the turnaround, the need for it to be increased and for the penalty to be increased enough that it actually acts as a deterrent. Neither of those things happened. I mean, the turnaround got increased a little bit, but the penalty was tweaked in a way that, and which is a longer story. I don't know, you know if you want to get into all that today, but it wasn't sufficient to address the concern that we all had and that we went into negotiations with. And because of all the conversations I have with me, I mean, I've worked for the Guild for almost 27 years now. I've been the head of it for three and a half. So um, I've had conversations with members for years. And this is a recurring theme of it, of like the long hours, they're exhausted, they're burnt out. I'm finding, I mean, it's troubling actually, not just that that's happened for so long and people, the industry sort of condones it, um, seems to not care. They're starting to care now, which is a good thing. They've got their attention a little bit. And, you know, yet there's never, there's not been a push to really collectively change this. And, you know, once we go, things start getting back to work and everything else, I, I think it, for a while, I think it'll be easier for us to sort of keep the hours at a normal pace. I mean, at least from all the union perspectives, and this includes the paperwork that was put together with the Directors Guild and SAG-AFTRA and the Teamsters and the IA, you know, everybody in there is like limit the hours to 10-hour workdays. The epidemiologists that were hired by the AMPTP, by the DGA, by SAG, by IA, all of them are saying this. The long hours are absolutely a factor and people not getting enough rest and creating, you know, compromising their immune systems. Well, first of all, I, w- I would like to point out the absurdity that we're fighting for 10 hour workdays. Can we just talk uh, yeah. about that? Can we just put, <laughs> can we put that out there? We're sure. desperately clawing and scraping for a 10 hour workday. Like, are you kidding me? The biggest shock that I've had in this industry, because I've, I've been on both sides of it. 20 year career as an editor, I've been in advertising, I've been in trailers, I've been in marketing, I've done documentaries, indie features, studio features, studio television. So I've seen the whole spectrum. And one of the biggest shocks was when I got my first union job and I read the contract and it said a standard 12 hour workday and a 60 hour work week. And like, got to be a typo. Like that's really <laughs> this, like I've worked 90, hundred hour weeks, but that was when it's crunch time to get the job done. But when it was just, this is the expectation. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. The, the soapbox that I've been on for years, and I have many, many soapboxes. This one I do happen to have in this room. I have many in the other room. I don't have space for all of them in my office, but I would say one of the biggest soapboxes that I've been on for years, more hours, does not equal better hours. And there is so much science to back up the fact that productivity radically diminishes and output diminishes. So before all this happened, I've been screaming from the rooftops, working people 60 to 80 hours a week is actually costing you more money and it's taking longer to get the quality of work you want because we can't be creatively effective with our time or our, uh, our focus. So it just, it seems to me, if there ever was a time to prove that number one, we can be equally or even more effective in less hours. This is a good opportunity to experiment because what else are we doing right now, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, look, the, the the whole notion of the 60 hours, and I, I want to clarify that a little bit because under, you know, in the unscripted world, they're under a different contract and they have 40 hour work weeks since it's structured very differently. Under the, you know, typical sort of motion picture, television production, uh, scripted world, um, they're on, the editors are what we call on call. Right. And so it doesn't mandate that you work 60 hours. It doesn't mandate that you work 12 hours a day. The problem is it's a five day guaranteed five day work week. 
and with no real set hours attached to it other than the 60 hours of contributions that go into your pension and health plan. So, you know, back, you figure that language has been in there for decades and decades and decades and decades when there was a studio system and people went to work for the studios and they kind of did work nine to five, you know, and they got extra hours into the plans and every once in a while if they had to work a little overtime, they did. You know, it obviously completely flipped into something that I don't just, I don't disagree with what you said. I mean, I think, I think the hours are outrageous and I think it's not acceptable to demand that people work these types of hours. It's really just not. And I'm really glad you clarified this idea of on call because I think it took me four years to actually understand what that means. So I, re- I want to talk about that a little bit further because I'm sure you've had this conversation ad nauseum in your sleep 24-7 for years. But yes, the contract says you are protected to have an on-call five-day week up to 60 hours. But as I'm sure you already know, there are many producers where the expectation is, well, you got to put in your 12 today. And my expectation is an editor and a creative professional. I've met all of my deadlines. I've done everything that I need to do. I'd love to be able to put my kids to bed in person instead of via FaceTime because I've got nothing to do. And then they hold it over your heads. Well, looks like you left at seven o'clock, you know, must be bankers hours today. It's like, it's seven o'clock and I want to see my kids, but they're thinking you owe me 60. So I know that the, the language is such, but the culture is very different than the language. Of course. And it is in, in some, res- well, in many respects in the union contract, that's the case. You know, it wasn't intended, again, it wasn't intended to require people work 60 hours. It's the, and then there is no 60 hours attached to it in the contract. It's not even, doesn't say 60 hours, you know, the 60 hours of the pension and health contribution. So they figure if they're giving you 60 hours of pension and health contributions, then they want 60 hours of work out of you. But the whole notion of having the on-call classification was for people that like you just described, right? You're adults, you know how much work has to get done. You know what needs to be finished before you leave at the day, end of the day. And you're going to get all your work done because that's what you guys all do. I know you guys kill, you know, you almost kill yourselves to do it. So let's not kill ourselves, but let's do it still with that kind of responsibility towards it, but a little flexibility to allow you to navigate your life a little bit better. And, you know, they're yeah, right. You leave a little early one day because your kids got a baseball game. You don't want to miss it. You know, the next day, maybe you'll put in some extra, you know, it's like, it's supposed to, it's supposed to balance out, but it's supposed to balance out for the employees and the employers, not just the employers. Yeah, the, the pendulum swings pretty desperately to, to one direction. And uh, the conversation that I hear all the time is, well, you know, you, you, you did the thing early that one day. So I'm, I'm sure, assuming you're good to come in Saturday and Sunday for free, right? It's like, eh, don't no. put me in the position that, to have to have that conversation. Definitely not. You're, you're, you're guaranteed five days of work. You'll report for five days of work. You're not required to work 60 hours, even though they may tell you that. So you show up every day, you work your hours, you go on a Saturday, you get paid for Saturday. You know, that's, that's absurd. And I know a lot of this goes on, but I also know that there's a lot of good employers who do the right thing by people. Um, and, and, and the, just quickly, cause I want to make sure that I make sure I clarify this when I was talking about sort of the unions now pushing for a 10 hour day, that's like a 10 hour production day, you know? how that will translate into post will be seen. But I, one of the biggest problems and complaints we were getting is because everything shooting digital and all the, the amount of dailies that come into the editorial rooms. Well, if they're shooting fewer hours, maybe, right. Then fewer number of dailies coming in, maybe the num- hours will be reduced for post too. And maybe this will be just a real, and the, you know, the, the other thing, sorry, but I don't want to forget this either. Cause I've talked to a lot of uh, people in post-production that are in management sort of positions 
you know, they're working from home now too, and they've got kids too. And I was on one yesterday and he kept saying, I'm really sorry. The kid kept interrupting him, his son. And I'm like, it's okay. It's fine. They're starting to realize, I think a lot of what it means to work from home, first of all, which is good because they should know it will help us advocate for what we need to advocate for. But I also think they're experiencing some of the, like many of them said this to me, it's like, oh my God, I was like this crazy, insane world we worked in. Nuts, hours. And they're just like kind of in a, their heads in a different place now. And maybe that will help us, I hope, for the future. Well, I would say that if, if there's two things that have really come out of this for the positive so far, and I've had this conversation at least with 100 people over the last three months, either in my coaching and mentorship program, via Facebook Messenger, whatever it is. And they say, I have such an awareness that I never had before of how badly I don't wanna live my life the way that I was living it before. Whether it's the specific medium they work in or they love the medium, but it's the hours or the things they've missed. It's this perspective, right? This awareness that has led to perspective. And I'm hoping that just that giant pit in somebody's stomach of somebody's gonna ask me to go back to work and things are just gonna go back to normal the way that they were. I literally can't stomach that feeling. That's the feeling people need to summon when p the producers, the studio executives, whomever it is, is pushing and saying, no, you got to sign the waiver. Or, you know, we're so far behind. You should just be lucky to have a job right now. Just think about that feeling for a second of what it's like to go back to the way that things were. Uh, absolutely. We don't want that. No, I don't, I don't think most people do. You know, I, I think there's going to be you know, some number of people who work on the production side, you know, they, I mean, they lost jobs overnight, completely just shut down without any warning really at all. Um, a lot of them are hurting financially really badly. A lot of them are hurting more than some of our post people that have managed to keep working remotely. I know that's not true for everybody, but so there's going to be this fine balance. I think you meant alluded to it in the beginning, this balance of like, Oh, we want to, we got to get back to work. We got to get back to work. We got to get back to work. And yet, I think everybody, I hope, I hope everybody is stopping and doing what you're saying with that gut feeling you know, in your gut of like, uh, I've, I've actually said it on some level and I'm working as many hours as I always have and maybe more, but there's something different about the way I'm working than I was before. And I'm even saying it like, oh, how am I going to deal with this when I go back to like report driving for an hour to get to Hollywood, you know, spending all that time getting home way later than I normally would, you know, all that kind of stuff that everybody's thinking about. I think it's an opportunity. I do believe that when things start resuming, that's going to stay with us for a while. I think it, I hope it'll stay with us for a really long while because I think the back to production is going to be rather gradual. But you know, and then I and then I think you know, human nature, right? Who knows? In five years, it'll be back to like as crazy as it was, and everybody will have forgotten. We got to keep reminding people. I think it's part of our responsibility. <laughs> My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found 
bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that is my biggest fear is that humans have an amazing ability to adjust. And that's both a good thing and that's a bad thing. And we have learned how to adjust. And even though, and I won't go into the, the politics or the statistics of the disease or the infection or anything else. But if you think about emotionally where we were in March versus emotionally where we are now in correlation to the statistics, the statistics are way higher. We're just kind of like, would have got my mask and do my grocery shopping. But imagine seeing the news today in March. We're very different people because we've learned to adapt. But that's also my fear is that we're going to go back to work with such desperation that we adapt to either the way things were. Or frankly, I think there's an option where things are actually going to be worse than they were before. And I'm hearing that from people already. We're working from home 16-hour days, seven days a week, where the demands are actually worse just because we're lucky to have the opportunity. And that, 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 that to me is a terrifying alternative I don't want to go back to at all. Yeah, it is a terrifying alternative, and I don't think we should allow we should not allow that to be happening. I get it. I mean, look, people – People have said to me, you know, well, I'm, I'm just grateful to be working. So I'm not going to ask for any box rental or I'm not going to ask for this or I'm not going to ask for that. I'm just happy to be working and I'm grateful. And and actually, I was on this Zoom thing with about a dozen editors on last Friday. And one of them said something like, well, you know, it's like the employers look at us like they're doing us a favor by letting us work at home. You know, and I said, actually, you're doing them a favor. They want to get their product out, right? They don't want added liability. They want to keep people at home to as long as they can and not have the number, you know, if you have liability for five people or 10 people, 100 people, it's very different, right? There's insurance policies. They buy all this stuff. So you're doing them a favor. That We got to reverse the thinking. You're helping them manage to get their product out. And, and there's a lot of inconveniences from working at home. I guess we're segueing into working yeah, at no, home, I suppose. What, what I want to do, I love where you're going. I want to put a pin in it. Um, okay. This is a core conversation. And anybody that's listening right now, I don't want them to think, no, no, keep going. Oh, trust right. me. We're going to go down this rabbit hole. I want to make sure we finish the other conversation first. Um, I want to go back to the hours for a second. Then we'll segue into childcare, working from home, compensation for that. I mean, I wrote an entire article that's titled Hollywood. We are not lucky to be here. You are lucky to have us. 
I'm on about, and I wrote that years ago. So that was not something I cooked up in the last week. I believe this right. for years and years. So I want to come back to that. But going back to this hour just of, uh, of the working hours, because I really believe that, uh, and I've been talking about this for years, writing about it for years, talking about it with my clients. What I've learned about myself and humans in general is that burnout, which is so, like you want to talk about epidemics, burnout was an epidemic before the true epidemic hit us. Absolutely. And all the study that I've done, my personal experience with it multiple times, burnout fundamentally comes from a lack of proper expectations. The expectation that you can get this amount done in a week, in a month, whether it's the length of an editor's cut or how long to deliver an episode or the hours that we can work, it's setting improper expectations. So what I'm curious, this is kind of a two-part question, but number one, and I, there's no way you have an answer to the first one, but I just want to use it to frame the conversation. In general, what, what does the timetable look like? barring whatever might be changing outside in the real world. But in general, if things weren't to change drastically, what's the timetable for us to start going back to work on a semi-regular basis? And that feeds into how much time do we have to figure out what the new standard hours need to be? And what should they be? Right. Well, you're right. I can't answer the first question at all. In fact, it was interesting. I got a, I got an email yesterday from a member saying to me, like, you know, I just heard the announcement for Gavin or Newsom. I'm really hopeful that that means they're going to slow back on this push to start production because he's terrified that we're starting too fast. You know, and I wrote back, I said, well, unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not sure how you look at it, at the moment anyway, in LA, and it's different in New York City, but in LA County, you know, they're, at least at the moment, the public health department experts are all like, wow, the entertainment industry did such a good job of putting together all this information and they're working collaboratively and they're in negotiations and they're trying to, you know, do the right thing. They're less worried about our industry than others. And so unless there's a shutdown of this whole state, we're going to probably continue to move inch forward. But the recent numbers in LA County that are shutting down making us step back in other areas, closing the beaches again, all this stuff I think is making everybody on the production side, labor relations union. We're all kind of like, what is this now? What, you know, can we really do this? Are we going to be able to start pre-production for some of these shows we hoped to? So, so I think there's some time, I guess I'll time for us to continue to reflect on this, but I think it needs to be, and there's been some dialogue about it on Facebook. You know, there's, various Facebook pages that a lot of IA members, you know, are, are on from production and posts and everything else. I, I think it's got to become uh, an issue that at least the vast majority of not just IA members, but people in the entertainment industry want to resolve, not just, okay, this is okay for a while and we're working to get the products out and that, you know, whatever you're doing, you're at home who knows, you know, I've heard this from some people too, producers and stuff like, well, they're working from home. They don't really know how many hours you're really putting in that, you know, they know you're getting the job done, but they don't know if you're taking off for a couple hours in the middle of the day and taking a walk on the park or whatever you're doing. Yeah. You know? Well, you know? the, the, so, the work from home situation is a micromanager's worst nightmare. Exactly. Because now they have to count on output and not monitor you. This concept of the theater of work. I'm walking to, Oh, the editor's at his workstation, assistant <laughs> editor's at his workstation. I'm doing my job. Like who cares? Right? Like I've cut entire scenes on studio walks. Haven't even touched the Abbott. Cut the whole scene in my head, walk back, cut it, and I'm done. So to a micromanager, oh my God, oh my God, what is my <laughs> team doing right now? Stop <laughs> caring. Let us do our jobs and trust us. Right? right. The work the work's being done, the product, yeah, everything is moving along when it's supposed to. I, I think we're gonna have, you know, it, well, again, it's you know, last now, last contract negotiations, that was our big push 
it was supposed to be a big push for everybody. It changed, obviously, a little bit in the politics of negotiations. Um, and that's a long story, too, which I won't rehash with everyone. But I, I think there's got to be a collective push to just not have it go back to how it was. We've got to take advantage. It's a good opportunity. I mean, you know, whatever, I mean, it's kind of interesting. So whatever we negotiate with the studios, everybody on our side is like, this is all, it's all temporary. This is temporary while COVID's happening until there's a vaccine or the the pandemic is eradicated, whatever. It's all temporary. Well, you know, we're going to be back in negotiations with the IA for the IA basic agreement. I don't know exactly when, but normally we would go in like March or April of next year because the contract expires expires at the end of July. So some of that stuff, you know, will either still will still be in place, or we'll be on the verge of talking about what to do with the fact that it's in place. And I hope, I sincerely hope that we can take that as an advantage and take that and say, you know, this worked for six months, and people are happier and their lives are better and they're. You know, it changed the industry in a really positive way. So let's keep that change in place and let's just keep improving upon it. That would be my desire and my goal. You know, there's a bunch of us that negotiate together. I don't know that they're going to share that same view. Well, I'm really glad you brought up the contract because that's literally where I was going to go next. I want to better understand the logistics and the timeline because I feel like it's it's a chicken and an egg conversation. There's two ways to look at it. Either we set new guidelines now and we say we're only going to do 10-hour days. We've now proven to you over the course of a year or roughly whatever the timeline is, this works. And they're like, you know what? They're right. It works. But the converse to that is but I'm not giving you a 10-hour day until the next contract. Your current contract is still the 60-hour week, so we need to ride that out until the next negotiation. Is that something that even these new COVID guidelines can kind of be like an interim new standard contract? Does it work that way? Like I just logistically don't know how this comes it, together. It doesn't work that way. So so no, nobody's talking about altering like minimum calls or changing on-call classifications. And we're not the only one that has on-call classifications. There's four or five other locals in Hollywood, I don't want to start naming them because I'll forget one, but there's several of them that also have on-call classifications. Um, Costume designers, I know, is one of them for sure. So nobody's saying, well, during these discussions about COVID and safety, nobody's saying, let's get rid of the on-call classification. That would be a collective bargaining thing that would go into collective bargaining. This isn't really collective bargaining. This is, here's all these safety things we have to do, what has to be adjusted in the contract to protect the employees under these circumstances. So it's a little different. What we're saying is limit the workday to 10 hours. You can still have an on-call classification, still get your 60 hours of pension and health contributions for a five-day work week. Let's just limit the workdays to 10 hours. Got it. So you're, you're not really talking about like a brand new negotiation. You're just saying, let's agree as human beings, we keep the same contract that we have, but people are only physically working at the office for 10 hours a day, right? Is that, is that kind of- That's what the cr- conversations are surrounding the safety protocols. Yes. Now, when we get into negotiations, that'll be a different story. We've proposed in the last, I think the last three times, maybe three times out of the last four cycles, I can't remember exactly, to eliminate the on-call classification for picture editors and put them on a 45-hour work week. And uh, we get nowhere with it. There's no traction. We can't, there's, I, I don't believe, I don't believe there's an appetite for changing that on the other side or collectively amongst the IA work that we all bargain with. So yeah, it, things like limiting the workday. So is, is there a world, and again, I don't really understand the machinations of negotiation, but is there a world where it's a 50-hour on-call work week? 
Well, again, there are no hours. If you look at the contract, what defines an on-call editor is a five-day work week. There are no hours attached to it. There's nothing that says it's 60 hours. The 60 hours is what they're required to provide to you for a five-day work week if you're an on-call employee for the hourly contributions that go into the motion picture plans. I see. So really, this is an adoption of here's the number on your paycheck. Therefore, I'm going to adopt it to the expectation that I have of your hours. That's interesting. I've never heard it put that way before. That that clarifies a lot for me. Yeah, and and our you know our on call editors, unlike the other on call classifications within the IA in Hollywood, um, they're actually entitled to golden time after working twelve hours. A lot of our members either don't know it or don't like to put in for it or whatever you know. So you're not really on a flat in the same way that some of the on call classifications are that don't get golden time. Some of them are truly a flat. You're just a five day. I don't care how many hours you work. You know. So I think that this brings up one other question about this, and then I do want to segue more to the, the work from home stuff and the kit rentals and the children and all that. Um, but this this is really a conversation that's been going on for decades and is now exacerbated like everything else we're talking about. But you alluded to it, which is kind of this hero mentality of, well, you know, we're really behind. Things are crazy. Sorry, guys, we just don't have the budget, but we got to meet the deadline. We'll take, we'll take care of you on the next one, right? <laughs> right. So you're thinking, well, I don't want to be the guy that at 12 hours and one minute puts it on my time card because then the producer gets upset and then my assistant editors yelled at for putting in two hours of overtime and then all of a sudden we're the difficult ones and then next season we're not invited back. So what do you do in that situation when you're fearing for maybe not not getting the money immediately but you just feel like I don't want to be the squeaky wheel because TV, it's not like I have a job at a TV studio and I'm going to be there for 30 years and retire. You get hired back every three, five, six months, and you're always laid off and rehired. So legally, them saying we don't want you back, they can do that. So how, how do you deal with that hero mentality? Well, it, it's I, – I, I wish I had the answers. I'll say it's, it's a big problem for the union. It has been for a very long time, and, and I understand. Look, I'm, I, you know, I'm not – I'm not the one sitting there in the editing chair when all this stuff comes up and saying, just tell them no, or just tell them, look, I got to go home or just say, you know, whatever. I I do think, I I believe, and and I've had this conversation with a lot of members over the years. And so I I do believe there's a certain way to approach it that's less intimidating to the producers or less in their face, you know, And, and maybe it's just the dialogue and the way the dialogue needs to be had. You know, I've had plenty, I've had, and, and people fear, like, if I do this, I'm never going to work again, okay? So that this is like, now I'm talking about assistant editors because I know a ton of them who put in for all the overtime that they're entitled to. They don't work overtime for free. They just don't. You know, they'll say to whoever they got to get approval from, hey, you know, it's 7 o'clock. I haven't finished doing X. I know you really wanted it for tomorrow. You know, should I, would you like me to stay and finish it? I'm going to be in overtime. Or I can come, you know, I can finish it in the morning put it back on them. It's their burden to manage all that, you know? And I know it sounds easy and maybe Pollyanna, I don't know, but that it's got to become the norm. So the people, so everyone's a squeaky wheel and therefore there are no squeaky wheels. You know what I mean? The squeaky wheel should be the person who's willing to do it. Everyone else, we got to, we got to start acting collectively as a union, looking out for each other, it's going to, you do it to, you know, you do it for one producer, that producer expects it from everybody else on the crew the next season, next whatever. 
and it's got to stop somewhere. It just has to. Yeah. And I, I agree with all of that. I think that the challenge is, as I'm sure you've had this conversation many times, production is so different than post-production. Production, you've got 150 people saying, okay, we're ready to wrap. Are we getting paid OT or what? And it's like, it's 12 o'clock at night. We're by ourselves. It's like, well, I don't, I don't want to be the one to say anything, right? But the, the, and this is union and non-union. This has nothing to do with whether you have the protection. But what I've been teaching people for years is that, and I've, I've ho- hardly ever worked more than a nine hour workday. Even when there's a crunch time, the reason I'm able to get away with that is because of the output. So what I found is that if you can clearly communicate with people, and like you said, it's sometimes how they approach it. If you're good at communicating and you're not the squeaky wheel, but if you can be the super hyper productive wheel and say, listen, I'm going to get everything done in 45 and you're going to love it. As soon as you can produce that output, they're like, you know what? We're good. And yeah. then when you come back and say, I really need the extra time and I'd like to be paid for it. They're like, we already know that you can do the work where you're doing it at a high level. If you need the time, clearly you need the time. And then they compensate. So I feel like immediately people they, they just put it all on the, the system that's, uh, that's pushing them down. Mm-hmm. And the system's making it very, very difficult. But again, looking at what we can control versus what we can't, I think there's a level of if I can really, and there are a lot of people still that are doing amazing work that are hyper-efficient, getting all the work done, still being told you can't get the overtime. But I think at least the first step is look at the way you're communicating that ask and what it is that you're delivering. And if you feel like there's not a commensurate recognition of that, that's where the problem is. But again, it's all about collectively as an office, not this island of editor assistant, this editor of the island assistant, but as the entire team of editorial, we need to agree that we're going to go grab lunch every day or we're going to take walking breaks and we're cool with it. And as long as we deliver and the team's happy with our work, well, then we don't need to nickel and dime this little you know, the, these hours here and there. So I think that there's a lot of responsibility on both sides. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's a really important point that you brought up. It's like, yes, it should be the entire editorial team and especially the editors. I mean, the assistants are in a much different position. You know, we need the editors to look out for the assistants, right? Um, they shouldn't have to fight for themselves. I mean, that's really uncomfortable when you're an assistant editor. And I know it's uncomfortable when you're an editor. Um, but yes, if the, if the team works together towards resolving some of the stuff, I absolutely believe it can get resolved. Um, the other thing I'll just say real quickly, and because we've coached people about this a lot, members that call, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I'm in this position and I'm afraid to say, you know, it's really, really, really scary the first couple times you do it. But the more you do it, it becomes less scary. And you start to realize you're not asking for anything special. You're just asking to be compensated for what's under the collective bargaining agreement that you didn't negotiate as an individual member. Those producers sign it with the union, right? So if a director has got a contract and the producers or somebody are violating it, he's going to go to the producers and say, you can't do that because my contract says X, Y, Z. That's all we're saying, right? It's not like a personal... I know it feels personal. Everything's really very personal in this business. I know people take the work personally and it's your, your passion and you feel like it's your baby and your product and, you know, but it's, it's got to shift a little bit in the thinking. And that's going back to what we talked about in the beginning. What's at stake, I'm hoping makes it easier for people to summon that courage and that confidence in themselves to set some boundaries and ground rules because it's no longer, well, yeah, I'm gaining a little weight and I'm tired and I missed a couple of recitals, but, you know, I'll be okay the next hiatus. No, you're not going to be okay this time if you don't manage this problem. Exactly. Right. right? So uh, now I want to segue to this conversation that we put a pin in because I know everybody wants to talk about this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's the combination of the expectation 
of pre-pandemic productivity in a post-pandemic world. Thinking, well, we're just going to be able to put the same calendars and deadlines together. And, oh, by the way, if you have kids at home, you're going to need child care. Sorry, but if you're working from home, we need to know you're putting in the hours. So child care is the first one. And then, oh, by the way, you're lucky to have a job. So do you mind if we use all of your equipment and your Internet and your air conditioning and your electricity? So let's talk more about the child care and also the kit rental conversation, because these are everywhere on yep. social media right now. Yeah, no, I know. And we're um, I was been spending a great deal of time talking about it in, in lots of different uh, uh, environments. But, um, well, okay, so the, the kit rental, let's do kit rental, which is different than being reimbursed for expenses for the use of your home. To me, two different, right? Two different things. So the kit rental is if you're, you're providing the equipment in order to get your job done rather than the company providing it to you, right? So for the kit rental piece of it, we are in the process of compiling a bunch of information that we got from survey that members took um, a few weeks ago um, that was about safety, but some of it was about if you're working from home, you know, and you're, and you're supplying equipment to the producer, what are you supplying? How much are you getting for it? Taking that plus a bunch of uh, the discussion that's been on the I Am The Union Facebook page recently about all this kit rental and what they think is reasonable and not reasonable. And people are all over. The a lot of people have not worked from home before. So they're clueless about like, I don't even know where to start. What's fair? What should I be asking for? So we're trying to compile all of that, plus all the years of just enforcement, helping members, you know, navigate through all that. So we're compiling all that information, hopefully, and, and I haven't really figured out the best way to present it yet. What I don't want to do is put like for X, you know, full avid, let's say just a full avid workstation. It should be no less than X dollars. If we do that, and there's a whole bunch of editors who are very well positioned to demand a whole lot more than that and have been for a very long time, obviously what happens? The producers go, well, now the union's saying it only has to be this. I'm not going to pay you this anymore. You know, it's totally, so that's not a good idea. So then we looked into going, well, maybe it's a range. Maybe shouldn't be less than this, could be up to this. You know, some of that could be flexible depending on budgets or whatever. And, and so it's, it's a little bit of a struggle uh, in terms of that. Um, but I do think we have to offer some guidance to members because they're looking for it. So we are trying to do that and we will continue to try to collate all that information and try to make some, put it together in a way that makes some sense. Hopefully that doesn't hurt any members, but certainly serves to help them. I mean, at the moment in the union contract, all it basically says is that they have to pay you for your equipment. There's no fee set to it, you know, and, and that's unfortunate. But I do think, like we talked before, this is sort of an opportunity us to take advantage of the situation and try to put some guidelines in place for this. The other piece, so getting reimbursed for living and working in your home, there are requirements by both the state of California and New York that employers have to provide you with reimbursement for expenses incurred while working at home. I have an attorney in, a, in California and an attorney in New York that are going through all those guidelines to make sure there's no any pieces where every once in a while in those kinds of laws, there's exceptions for collective bargaining agreements and things like that. So we're going through those very detailed, putting together a list of all the items that you can expect to be reimbursed for. Like you said, you know, maybe increased electricity, increased bandwidth for your internet. You know, you're, it's going to get hot. It's getting hot pretty soon. People are working at home. Their air conditioner, you know, their electricity rates are going to go higher. All that stuff, that should be provided for by the employer. 
I think the thing will be is how to do that. Cause there's one of two ways, I guess you could, as a person, you at your house could say, well, I think it's going to cost X. Maybe I'm going to use 20% more electricity. I'm using a space in my house that my family now can't use because I'm in it all the time. And what's that worth? You know, I'm putting some monetary figure attached to it, adding all that up and then saying, you know, here's how much I want for reimbursement of expenses. The other way is to keep track of all of it, which is a little more probably annoying on some level, but at least it's legitimately provable then, you know, here's how much my electricity went up. I, you know, here's how much this went up and you, and some of this is going to be gauging it, but, um, so we're doing all that for those list of things that people can expect to and, and what the parameters are for demanding those reimbursements. We're starting to ask now as people are reaching out to us, producers are reaching out to us about people going back to work or people who are going to be working remotely that weren't before. And we're starting to ask those questions. Are they getting a box rental? How much are you giving them? Um, not a lot of stuff that we asked before and we got to keep doing, we have to keep doing this all the time. And are they being re- reimbursed for expenses and what's, what kinds of expenses? And, and the employers so far that I've been dealing with have been very forthcoming with what they're doing. But I think they're employers that are generally better with our members, you know, so far. But we have to keep doing that. The other piece, the childcare, yeah, this is, it's in, and, and I said something about it earlier because it was a, a head of a post production department at one of the bigger independent studios that I was talking to when his son kept interrupting him. and. And I don't think he'd ever experienced working from home and being interrupted by a child while he's trying to work. And he was so apologetic. And I could tell he was uncomfortable with it. And again, I just said, totally fine. Don't worry about it. I get it. You're home, you know. But I hope hope that that somehow makes people start thinking of uh, all of you as not cogs in the wheel and not machines that are push, pushing out product for them, like human beings who have stuff in their lives that need to be taken care of and looked after also, right? Uh, you're better at your job if you can do all those things in your life, I think. The notion, and I saw it on Facebook yesterday of somebody saying, employer said, you know, you got to have childcare if you're working from home because you got to be working. It's like, you got to be kidding me. I don't even know how, where that came. I, th- I was grateful to know it was a non-union per- place, but still not okay. You know, it's like, what's, what's, the, what's the reaction back to that? Okay, if you're going to say I have to have childcare, are you going to p- pay me for my childcare? I mean, what am I supposed to, you know, what are you supposed to do? Um, I, I think that's, and I'll say, uh, the conversations that I've been having in this whole union uh, labor relations world, nobody is comfortable saying anything quite like that because it you know it sounds like a, you're a ridiculous person, right? It's like I don't care if you got kids, blah blah. And a bunch of men have kids at home, and, and not just producers and heads of post productions, but you know some of the labor relations people. They're all like everybody. Everyone's talking about it. Like, this is so hard. They had no idea that, you know, so I think something's going to have to, and I don't know, I, I don't know what that is. So I don't want to say, but something, it has to be addressed if it's being used as a way to either not employ people as an excuse because you've got kids and I don't trust you're going to be working. That can't, that can't happen. We just I believe, can't I believe the word you're looking for there is discrimination, <laughs> right? I mean, that, yes. that's, that's pretty, that's pretty blatant to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, discrimination, right. Against people who have kids, discrimination against people who are over a certain age, discrimination about people who are, have compromised immune systems, you know, and, and what if you, you know, you get kids. Yeah. What if you're reporting to work, even if, if you, even if you're reporting to work, but you have small kids in your house and you're doing everything you can. I mean, these are the conversations we're having. You put in all these safety protocols, everybody going to a work site and they're required to abide by them, but everybody leaves there and goes home at night or whatever, or goes the weekend. Nobody knows what they're doing or if they're complying with all the safety protocols and who they're coming in contact with. And, you know, this to me is like, we all have to look after each other. If we want this business to thrive, we need to start taking care of each other. First of all, virtual high five. Clearly, I agree <laughs> with all of that. That's awesome. There's a whole lot of stuff to unpack here. Um, I think this, this, this again comes back to the conversation of we need to stop belonging to this cult of the theater of work, that it's all about looking busy and being busy. It's about what is it that I can provide to you and can I do it by your deadline? Right. So it doesn't matter if you have kids running around the house, deliver what you need to deliver. You're available to me when I need you available, which, by the way, is another conversation in and of itself. But why you have to be able to separate childcare if it's a matter of I just need to meet this deadline like that. We need to stop having that conversation. That is the 20th century industrial revolution assembly line mentality of clock in, clock out. That has got to be destroyed. We have so many tools now to produce so much work and so much less time. Stop worrying about how much I'm doing it and when I'm doing it. Just worry about what I'm doing and is it what you need, right? That That's the first part of the conversation. And there, I don't know if you saw this, um, but along the lines of the child care, this is not just some random non-union person. Did you hear that it became a regulation at Florida State University? Did you hear the story where it said that, that they basically sent all of their staff members, their adjunct professors, I think that maybe the tenured professors were exempt, but it said as of this specific date, I don't remember the, the date, so I'm paraphrasing, but it essentially said as of this date, you will be required to provide childcare going forwards. It's like, pretty sure the pandemic's still happening. Pretty sure nothing's changed, but they've decided, yep, we want to go back to normal now. So you need childcare if you want to continue to be employed. And it went crazy viral. So it's not just some little tiny non-union house. This is a real conversation now. That's interesting. I'll have to look that up. Of course, it is Florida, and I don't know what their state laws, (laughs) (laughs) you know, what what they require or not, but... um... And I don't know if those people are represented by a collective bargaining agreement in a union or not either. But um, I'll, I'll just I'll look it up. I, did, I didn't see that. Yeah. So the, the, this, is gonna be, th- this is going to this is going to keep happening. This is going to be a bigger fight than um, than we might anticipate. So I think it's it's good to start having these conversations. It'll be interesting. Them. Like I say, who's going to be the person sitting there saying, I don't really care if you have kids at home. You're going to have to figure out a way to babysit them because I'm not paying for you to babysit your kid. I mean, who's going to. God, I mean, I know there's some really terrible people that work in the industry, but really? I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you 
to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off. It's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Yeah, no, I'm I'm right there with you. The only response I've got is really, yeah, like, really, like, yeah. But exactly. we're there. That that those are the conversations that are now going to start. Um, I want to go now a little bit deeper into the nuance of the kit rental thing because I know this is so complicated. You're like doing advanced calculus trying to figure this out, and one spectrum is. I've got the Avid, I've got the kit rental. You were paying a rental house $1,500 a week. I want the exact same thing. So that's that's the one extreme I'm seeing. Um, and then the other extreme is you get to work from home. What are you complaining about? We're not paying you anything. So would you say those are fairly accurate uh, ends of the spectrum? Or are you hearing other things? Because sure. that's what well, I'm hearing. I, I guess. I mean, I don't hear a lot of we're not paying you anything because we're well, doing I've, I've favorite, definitely heard that. But, yeah. But yes, I would say, I guess those are the good, the spectrum, sure. So what I'm curious about, I don't, and again, I don't expect you to have the answer because things are changing and evolving so quickly. But from the conversations that you're hearing, do you feel like over the next few months, once production slowly starts again, is it going to be 100% work from home? There's no central office, no equipment, and we expect the editors and the assistants and the team to do everything. Is it we're going to get everybody back in the office and it's going to be a safe environment? Or is it you're going to bounce back and forth? Because that's where the kit rental gets really complicated because then the studio can say, we're already paying the $1,500 a week. So like it, it really is this really complicated math problem. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and it's a, I don't think I can answer. I think, because I think it's going to vary depending on what type of product people are working on. You know, it's going to be different in features than it might be in scripted television. It's going to be different in scripted television than it might be in unscripted television. You know, we get people that work in animation, you know, too. So to the ex- I know to the extent that people can stay home and work remotely, I think that is the preferred way to do it now from the employer's side viewpoint also. You know, my concern about all that, which I agree, I mean, I want people to be safe. That's got to be the primary thing, right? But there are a lot of our members for whom it's not really working to be working from home. They don't have the adequate space. They don't have, adi- you know, they, they're, I mean, I've heard story, you know, they're working on their dining room table, you know, and they're like, it's creating issues and space with other people they live with. And it's not ideal. And it's just, and the kids are there and it's hard, you know, whatever. And so I, I think for the people who can work at home successfully, you know, they should be allowed to continue to do that for as long as possible. I mean, if we could keep a bunch of those people home until they're God, maybe a, a vaccine or, you know, some big, huge change in all this pandemic, then then you'll all be ultimately safer. But I do think there's going to be some of the bouncing back and forth because some of the work has to, you know, you got to collaborate still with some of this and you got to come on to the studio lots or wherever else for whatever post-production, you know, stuff you're going to be doing 
in a different environment. So I think it's going to be a little bit of everything. Yeah, and I'm I'm really happy that you're acknowledging the fact that not everybody wants to work from home. Um, I will I will share a dirty little secret that really isn't a secret because I've mentioned it before. I'm clearly not excited about all the things that are happening in the world. But if I lived in a bubble and I didn't have the internet and all I did was look out my window, I feel this guilt of like. I've been working for this for 15 years, right? I've been socially distancing at an Olympic level since 2005. <laughs> I have pushed so hard to be in an environment where all I have to do is measure my success by my output, where I can do whatever I want. I can do a homework with my kids. I can make lunch. I can cook at home. This has been my world forever. So when this happened, I was like, cool. Right. Like right. I, I built the strategies and the communication with my family and how to block out work from family. But I've just been flooded with people that have said, I have no idea how to manage this. Right. Right. And I think right. that the, the, the big universal thing that's changed for everyone is and I've been told so many times, either I've spent my entire career looking for work or working. I don't know what to do with myself. Right. So for the vast majority of the people that are probably listening, they're not dealing with work from home issues because they don't have work at all. But once we start to go back to work, that's a whole new thing. If people are having a hard time just surviving the quicksand of being at home during a pandemic when they don't have to work 60-hour weeks trying to deliver a TV show remotely. So I think that that's something that has to be factored into the conversation. If we're talking about uh, expectations and calendars, one of the, the phrases that I use so often that's kind of half-joking but half-not is this idea that in post-production, today's miracle becomes tomorrow's expectation. And we just keep moving the goalpost further and further and further. And if we go to the goalpost that we had on March 12th and say, well, this is how many days we need for an editor's cut. This is how many days we need for a director's cut. It's not going to happen anymore unless the volume of material is so much shorter. And hopefully it will be. But I'm, I'm not that hopeful that it's going to go from five hours a day to an hour a day. Might might come down by 20 or 30 percent. If I were going to go back to a show and somebody said, well, the, the standard editor's cut is two days. I'm like, nope. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. Like we need post pandemic expectations. So is that just kind of a, an informal conversation? Is that one of these interim negotiations for an agreement? Is it a contract thing? Like where does all of that factor in? It, it depends on how we approach it. Negotiations that take place with the IA collectively that we do every three years with the basic agreement doesn't always provide an opportunity to address really detailed, specific things that are going on specific to crafts. It's just not set up that way. So, you know, if we can change the world without going through um, the collective bargaining process, I think we're better off trying to do that. And I think as we've both said during this talk, you know, we're, we're in a, we're positioned in a good way now to maybe take advantage of some of this and try to utilize some of this in order to position ourselves better so maybe as we move into negotiations, things are not as bad as they were three years ago when we were going into them. And maybe there'll be some recognition of that. It's hard to say. You know, you got producers on the other side and they're they're going to be desperate to start making money again. And, you know, it's it's it's. I don't know if I answered your question. Apologize. I kind of went all over, but no, I, I, it's, it's, it's yeah. a complicated thing to answer. And I don't really understand the logistics of how this all comes together, but I know the argument that's been made to me more than once, and it may be an improper argument because I'm, I'm not on your side of things, but when somebody says, well, the DGA, they've got a protected four day director's cut in TV 
Can we protect the editor's cut in the same way? Again, I, is that even something that becomes a conversation? How does that work if we want to use this as an opportunity to talk about having the space necessary to produce the best product possible? Sure. It, it absolutely provides an opportunity to have the conversation. It ultimately, if something were going to be changed in the collective bargaining agreement, that would have to be negotiated. But before you get to the negotiation, having the dialogue is the best thing to do because we want to know what could we do, what would make sense. Is there something reasonable that we could propose? We don't go in there with some crazy proposal and just look at you and you're like, Bleh. you know, it doesn't happen, right? Some reasonable thing, maybe. Maybe there's some guidelines. Maybe there's just some, you know, be, I guess, premature for me to answer without sitting down and having a little further dialogue about what, what editors think that should look like. And think about how strategically how to try to move in that direction. Sure. And I understand there's a lot of moving parts. And I'm I'm obviously very partial to talking about scripted television because that's my world. And I know it's it's different editors cuts for features and TV and reality. Like I so I know that it's it's a it's a rapidly moving target. So I, I'm not expecting a an answer, but I think for me it's better understanding the process of how that change happens and understanding all sides of the argument. Cause going back to the kit rental, um, what I what I see a lot in a lot of the Facebook comments is it's all about here's what it looks like from my perspective i'm using my equipment right you guys don't even have an office so you guys aren't spending any of the money that you used to be and then the flip side of it is the producers and the studio are saying do you have any idea what it costs to build a remote workflow and have the cloud storage and all this other stuff so i think there are a lot of assumptions on both sides where it's well this is what i'm doing yeah but this is what i'm doing well, if we all communicate, there, there's a really there's a nice place in the middle. But if we're just so stuck in this is my situation, this you have to acknowledge this. It's like we need to understand where everyone is coming from because we're all dealing with challenges. The producers don't have it easy. Studio executives don't have it easy. They're stuck at home trying to figure out all this with kids. So to me, this again one of the opportunities that I'm seeing from this that you've already alluded to, we're realizing we're all humans. We all have the same human problems, so maybe there's a place to meet in the middle. I, I hope so, you know, and, and I, I'll say in, in the protocols that we put together, which are not collectively bargained, so producers can look at them and choose to disregard them, although we're going to fight for a lot of it anyway. But, you know, we put, especially in the box rental section, you know, that something that stand, some standardization should be worked out between the employers and the unions. Like, we, it's a collective problem. I view it. They don't want to, I mean, they would much, I think, much rather have, it's just like our scales in our contract, right? If you... And, and, and labor relations people will admit this sometimes to you, you know, it's like they don't want to sit down and negotiate wa annual wage increases with 5,000 picture editors. They're going to negotiate it with the union and here's what it is and people that do overscale do overscale. Well, imagine if we could do the same thing with box rentals, you know, so there's a standardized thing and then they wouldn't have to individually. I mean, they probably want, they, they on they, the post-production management teams they're all talking to each other about what they're paying to people too. And they're all trying to figure it out in a new way also. So why don't we just collectively, collaboratively figure it out together? And then there's no problems. And we're, union's not calling them and we're not hassling them and they're not, you know, everybody's good. That's how it ought to be in the ideal world. <laughs> well, 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 fingers crossed. Let's hope that that's the direction that we are able to go as opposed to, as opposed to some of the alternatives. Are there core issues that we have not talked about yet that are meaningful, very important conversations you're having with the various organizations that we haven't touched on yet? No, not, not, not surrounding this type of thing. I mean, obviously the, the other thing I'm spending a great deal of my time about on right now is um, all of the, um, the issues of racism that have come up recently and a lot of outreach from lots of people. I'm spending lots and lots of times in conversations and engaged in all that sort of stuff. But in terms of the safety 
most, you know, surrounding safety, COVID, you know, virus things, you know, it'd be probably be impossible to touch on all of them. You know, we talked, we didn't talk really about testing and what happens if you end up getting sick when you're at work and they send you home and paid sick leave and how long do you get paid for? And are you guaranteed your job when you're well again? And all those sorts of things. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we're, but a lot of that's still being discussed and worked sure. out. Sure, And you know, that that's actually one area that I do want to talk about, because this is something I've written a little bit about and I've done a lot of research. I am always hoping for the best, but I prepare for the worst. I'm a borderline prepper because I want to make sure that I'm ready for whatever comes my way. So I think we should have the conversation. And again, not an expectation that it's figured out and you have the answer, but I'd like to know where the conversations are. What happens if I go to work and I get sick? What, what, what expectation do I have? Am I just out of luck? Am I going to get paid for the whole duration of the sickness? Like what, what are those conversations if the worst happens and I go in and I'm sick? Well, they're too yet to be, yet to be determined, but I'll say from the union side, I mean, the collective unions, you know, if you read, you know, they, that we, there was a statement, not a statement, a document, long page document issued um, called Safeway Forward that addressed a bunch of this stuff. So collectively, the unions believe that people, if they're sent, if they're test positive, come down with COVID, whatever, you know, if they're sent home, that they should be paid sick leave while they're out, that they should be able to return to their jobs when they're well. And that's the position we're taking. Still has to be negotiated. Got it. But the the idea or the expectation, if we're able to make it happen, Mm -hmm. is I'm not taking it upon myself to figure out what to do about my livelihood if I get sick while I'm on a job. I'm hopeful that my employer is going to take care of me. Let's hope. That's what they ought to do. uh, Yeah. So a question that's coming in now, and I'm not sure, I don't want to open, there's like 27 different cans of worms that we could open. Um, and we, we have a very limited amount of time and I have no intention of opening them. But I think that, so um, the the actual question would be, why are so many shows non-union? How many Endemol, Disney, ABC cable shows that are under a shell company that are in the exact same building that are nonetheless non-union that have 10 hour minimum days and they have pressure to work longer, but it's all under the table. So the major shows that are on the air successful, they're well-funded, but they're still non-union. So this isn't really COVID related, but it's, it is a really good question where when I thought of non-union versus union, it was the indies, it was the small up and coming production houses. And then I came into the scripted side of things. I'm like, wait, how is that reality show that has 20 million viewers non-union? So it's actually, that's a good question. Maybe a little bit off the, the beaten path, but it is a good question. I'll do it in a really short, short I'm, order. I'm guessing so you've answered it, it before. It, it, the short answer is it's whatever it is, is being produced by an entity that's not union. So, you know, nobody's obligated to be union unless you're signed to a... I can't do this fast, I guess. If you're signed to a term, <laughs> what we call a term agreement, which means, you know, Universal Studios, N- NBC Productions, whatever, you know, at fill in the blanks is signed and everything that they're going to do, well, that's, not, that's not even the easy way to describe it. I'll just say this, that we want everything to be union. There are sometimes people that skirt the union contracts a bit, but most of the times when you're working in the, for a production non-union, it's because that production actually is legitimate not signed to an IA agreement. And we have a staff of organizers. You should reach out to them, even if you're not members of ours, touch base with them, see if there's any feasibility. You know, maybe we've heard of the same employer before. Maybe we know of this employer. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe we can do something to help. Maybe we could organize it. We want everything to be union. It's too complicated. I, you know, it's, I realize it's too complicated to answer 
in a short order. I think it's helpful though to understand how absolutely complicated it is. It's not <laughs> as simple as, well, everything should be union or they're, it should they're, in, be, they're, in, the, they're in the Disney building and they're sharing a wall with the show that's union, but it's, it's, it's vastly more complicated. They're, least, they're leasing space from Disney and they can, those union studios can lease to anybody they want. Got they it. Okay, so that, be, they don't have to be union. Yeah. Companies. So it's, it's, again, I think that's a can of worms that uh, probably isn't worth getting into in this conversation, but good to know that there, there's a lot of moving parts to it. Yeah. Uh, and but I at really the end would of the encourage day, people to reach out to us. Right. And like you said, also, there have been plenty of shows in the non union world that have flipped. And that's because enough people decided, you know what? We're done. You know, we, we got to find a better way. So I think that as an individual, it's good to know that th that that can happen. But there's a there's a whole lot of pieces going on behind the scenes that are making the structure. Of what oh, yeah, now. especially in the unscripted world. I mean, you'd look back seven, eight years, nine years ago. We had like nothing covered. Now we've got hundreds unscripted shows that are under the union umbrella. Right. Uh, so the next question we have, which is a, a good one. Um, when are the work from home kit rental guidelines coming out? Do you have a date that you are working towards having these ready for everybody? Oh, I hate to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'll, I'll say that it's one of my top priorities. I hope by the end of next week that we'll, or maybe even before the end of the week, maybe have some semblance of what we think it ought to be, what it ought to look like. I don't know if we want to then run it through some some members preliminarily before we put it out there, probably we would. So as soon as possible, I'd say, I mean, if anybody needs help now or needs information or anything, please reach out to us. But without pinning myself down to an actual date, as soon as possible. So it you're saying it's, it's, it's a priority. It's difficult to navigate this given present circumstances, would you say? Yeah, well, it's just, it's, it's a lot. And it's a lot of different things to consider. Like I said, it's different types of genres of things, who's working from home, who's not. We've got, you know, and, and we get very focused. And I know this conversation is very focused on picture editorial, you know, but we've got sound editors too. And we've got engineers and we've got, you know, people that work in post-production departments on the studio lots, and some of them are working from home. They're not using Avas, they're using other equipment, you know? So it's kind of all over the place. And it's just like, you know, while the focus has been on picture editorial work remotely, there's a lot of other considerations. Sure. Yeah, I would agree that we, we definitely want to include everybody that's a part of this, which actually brings up a question that I have. I have another one that came up, but I actually have my own question, something I've never been able to understand. Again, completely different can of worms. But if we're talking about this idea of being in the same building, you've got one union show sharing a wall with a non-union show. But on a more microcosmic level, I can be on a show where I'm sharing a wall with a production team that's non-union. How does that work? How is it that the people that I'm collaborating with on the same show every day, like the, the post-production supervisor, the PA, even the associate producer, what are the machinations such that we're the editorial department, but we have certain protections that don't, they don't even get? So oh, you don't mean production people on set. You mean- No, no, like, I'm talking the about post-production. They're, they're not represented by a union. You know, I mean, there's been occasions over the years where there's been some discussions along those lines, but currently they're not- they're not represented by the union. So that's more, if, if you were to do it, because I know a few producers that are in the producers guild, but it seems odd to me that, uh, especially because the, the path is becoming more and more common, that you're a post PA, you're a supervisor, then you kind of weasel your way into the assistant editor's room and you sit on a chair behind them and then you become an assistant. But the tracks are so far off. It's like climbing two completely different ladders where you have to like leap off of one 
if you want to go from the, the office department via the, I guess, the creative department, for lack of a better explanation. I don't think that's a good way to describe it, but why, just, just out of curiosity, why is it that the people that are working in the post area wouldn't just be protected as like a post producer as opposed to the producer's guild? Well, first of all, the producer's guild isn't actually a union. It's an organization, you know, it's an honorary organization. So it's not a union, which is different. So in order to, okay, so if we wanted to add a new, any new classification to our contract, you know, we obviously can't just add it. We have to go into negotiations with the AMPTP and propose that going forward, X classification be covered under our contract. We actually made an effort to do that with post-production supervisors, probably 10, 12, maybe longer. I don't know. Everything meshes together after a while. Um, years ago, um, we were not successful in achieving it and ended up setting up, helping to set up what they call a non-affiliate agreement. So post-production supervisors had a mechanism to get contributions made into the motion picture plans, but weren't under the union contract. So if you're, it's like anything else. When you go into negotiations with the studios jointly and you're doing this, we let's say we were proposing, we want to include post-production supervisors in our contract going forward. Everything's negotiated, right? So they're not going to give us something just to be like, hey, we want to be nice guys. No problem with us if they're covered. They look at, you know, what are we going to give them in exchange for that? And why would we give up anything for our existing classifications in order to get a new classification. I, I wouldn't advise we do that. And so we haven't found any other way really successfully to, to do that. Got it. So again, the, the answer is it's very complicated. <laughs> yes. Understood. Okay. So the, a couple of, uh, I, I'm hoping are very specific, quick questions. One of which is a follow-up to the previous. Once it comes out, again, we're not sure when, how would people get the box rental guidelines? We will blast it out to the membership. We'll have it available on our website. We'll make, we'll make sure you see it. Got it. So it'll be just like a, a series of PDFs yeah, or website. Yeah, if you, website if you, if you or, pay if you pay attention to union stuff in general, you there's no way you'll be able to miss it. Got it. Uh, <laughs> so another one that's a little bit more logistical that I'm definitely going to let you handle. It says, what about the new media contract that's negotiated by the IA? Will your negotiations also include those IA contracts? I don't even know what any of that means. So I'm just going to let you handle <laughs> that because I, I don't get any of that. If he's well, if the, if the question is re, in regards to will the safety protocols we put in place apply to the new media projects under the basic agreement, the answer is yes. I think that's what the question is. If there are new media companies who are not represented by the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture Television Producers, because people opt in to be represented by them or not voluntarily, if they're not represented by them, they're not going to be bound to anything that the AMPTP agrees to. So we would have to individually negotiate those, which I think the IA intends to do. I mean, there's also the low-budget national theatrical agreement that's not affiliated with the MPTP, so that would have to be negotiated separately. It's, it's, it's going to be a process to get through everyone. Got it. So it's another one of those where there's a, basically what I should have done is just gotten you a giant flow chart <laughs> with like seven different colors of uh, whiteboard markers and strings. Like we, sh we should have just made the whole background look like you're a serial killer with like all the, the strings <laughs> the and the pictures and, and like, <laughs> let me explain to you how all of this works, right? Yeah, so yeah, four it's, hours it's later. Some of it's complicated. Yeah, it no, it's Sounds yeah. like it's very, very complicated. Uh, so another question that's a follow-up to the previous one. It seems like the, the kit rental thing is really, uh, really, really driving people nuts right now. Um, so I know this is actually somebody that I know that just started on a new production. Um, and she's asking, how should we deal with productions that are asking us to quote them rates for kit rentals or office space before the guidelines come out? Do you have any advice or recommendations to negotiate until there are guidelines? If you are in Los Angeles, call Jessica Pratt, who's our 
senior field representative. If you're in New York, call Jennifer Madar, who's the field rep out in New York, and we will help you figure that out. Excellent. I think that's a, that's a great answer. Uh, so there's one more question that I want to address, and then I want to be uh, very respectful of your time and try and wrap this up in, in a few minutes if we can. I think this comes along the, the lines of we're going to have to understand where everybody's coming from every side with their budgets and the, their restrictions. But the question is, how about we just hire more editors and assistants so we can spread the workload so instead of everybody working 80 hours, they work 50 hours? What a concept, right? right? I've crazy. been saying this forever. It's like if somebody would stop and do the math, you know, it's less. It, it, but but it does. OK, so if, if, if all of our members were putting in for all of the overtime they actually worked, would be the first piece of that. And then someone did the math between what all that overtime costs and what it might cost to add another body, maybe that would change. But as long as people are working for free here and there, putting in a little bit, I, I don't know that the, they don't have the math, the real math to prove it's less expensive. So in their minds, they're just thinking, we got to pay something. We might as well just pay the overtime when we need it, knowing that we might get lucky and we don't need it, but we don't want to commit to having more people and more space and more equipment yeah, but rentals. Yeah, but, but and, do the math. I mean, that's, it's, it's all about money to them, right? Somebody sits down and does the math. What, what's this, you know, it depends on what kind of TV, if you're on a scripted show, you know, scale for another assistant editor plus benefits. I mean, it's not a lot of, it's really not a lot of money when you think about it. And yeah, everybody could have a better life and, certainly one of the ways to solve the problem, I think. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I've seen the spectrum all the way from I was on my first TV show was a two editor rotation. We had 18 episodes in seven months. So it was nine episodes in seven months. This was burn notice. So my first season, which is not an easy show to cut, like it's very editorially complex. You'd have a two day editor's cut, you work with your director, and you're getting dailies while you're in your producer notes. And I was like, this is how things work. It's crazy. <laughs> and then luckily when I, uh, when we moved on to season five, I was brought on as a third editor and some of the load was taken off. And for the most part, it seems like the standard is the three editor rotation. But I was on one show where there was a four editor rotation and was like, you mean this is possible? I thought this couldn't be done. It, everybody there was so happy. I mean, we, we had great schedules. Like we, it, was, it was still difficult, still a hard show to work on. But we had lives outside of the job. That's but really cool. Very rarely did people have overtime because we had enough staff where there was space where if you overlapped between picture locking and starting another episode, there wasn't that much overlap. But where that what that really came down to was the genius of the producer that was able to work with the money and say, you know what? I feel like I have the budget for three-ish editors, but if you want us to meet this deadline and not have to replace people every two months because it turned out, Let's find a way to financially make it work so I can do it with four. Best lifestyle job I've ever had in oh my, my career. Oh, my God. And, see, and, let's, and let's tell those stories publicly. I mean, those are the kinds of things, you know, we should be writing about in our magazine and covering those kinds of successful ways that people did this and all. Keep promoting. we got to keep promoting the idea and providing examples of, of how it really actually can work. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So we're at the point where I want to wrap it up. If you could give one piece of advice to all the many, many people out there that are trying to figure out how am I going to navigate this new normal and what do I think it's going to look like? What can I do? What's the one piece of advice that we could leave everybody with? Oh, geez. Um, that's an interesting, you put me on the spot there, Zach, but that's okay. Because I, I'm used to being put on the spot. So. I have a tendency <laughs> to do that. That's okay. And I, and I have a tendency to be put on the spot occasionally. So it's all good. I'll, I'll say that, and this is going to sound, it might sound kind of corny union stuff, but 
you know, to, to realize that we're, we're collectively going through this, all of us, and you're not, you're not on an Island by yourself. It feels that way. I think, especially because we're isolating at home and all that kind of stuff, but to realize that we're part of this bigger community and that we can solve all these things as a larger community, you know, to stay engaged with the union, please. I mean, try to read whatever we send out and, you know, I send out videos occasionally and watch that stuff and make sure you're in tune with what's going on. You know, be involved, get engaged. If you're not, we need to come together to help one another through this. And, and if we do that, I think people will come out at the other end much more successfully than if you feel like you're all alone by yourself trying to navigate this and no one understands what you're going through. Um, we're all going through it together, just different levels in different ways. But yeah, the, the, the phenomenon that I've seen that's so interesting is that we're physically distancing and we're all at home, but I really feel like socially we're actually coming so much closer together than we were before. We might've shared walls, but we weren't sharing lives and experiences. And I think just on a global level, this is far beyond union and editorial, just as humans, I really feel like there's a collective experience that we're all going through that shows we're physically distanced, but socially, I just feel like there's so much more coming together. And maybe like you said, that's Pollyannish because you can read the news and prove me wrong. Um, but I feel like in so many different levels of society that's happening. And I think your advice is really sound that if we see this as just not seeing it as I'm stuck in a dark room or I'm stuck in a dark room at home and I'm by myself and on my own, even if I'm non-union, I can reach out to people. I can ask for advice. I can get support and I don't have to be the one that fights this fight alone. And I want to be a resource to those people as well. That's why I'm here. So I appreciate that you're, you're in the, the same camp and you want to provide those resources. Yeah. And, and then of course, obviously the, the bottom line, through all this, which is where we started out. This is about your life and your health and the life and health of your loved ones, you know? So that, don't, don't compromise anything. Don't, you should not, we cannot, we can't let that happen. Yeah, now is not the time to compromise. Now is not the time to compromise. Well, this has been beyond a pleasure. We've been trying to make this happen. At least I have been trying to make this happen for years. And I know we've had many emails back and forth. And I I can't thank you enough for sharing your time, your expertise, all of your experience. Uh, It means a lot to me. I know that it means a lot to the people that are here today that are watching, that will be listening. Uh, So I just want to stay to you what I say to everybody else. I would like you to stay safe, healthy, sane. And Kathy, please be well. And I want to say that to everybody else in Facebook Live Land as well. Take care of yourself. Don't compromise. Stay safe, healthy, sane, and be well. And thank you, Zach. I appreciate the opportunity. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.